Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Eric, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. It's fun to be here with you, and uh, thanks for having me on board. Absolutely, absolutely. Why don't we start by learning a little bit about your background? You spent, what, five or six years at Netflix before joining Stitch Fix. How did you kind of get started in uh, data science and machine learning and kind of work your way to Netflix and Stitch Fix? Oh, okay. You want to go way back. Um, Well, let's see. To to be honest, uh, data science is kind of what I wanted to do from the very beginning, even back 20 years ago, undergrad days, we, I might be closer to 25 now, um, that we didn't have the word data science back then. But when I, I majored in my undergrad was economics, and particularly microeconomics was a passion of mine. I thought this is something that I wanted to do for companies, right? You go in there, and it seems like such a, what I call a noble way to compete. We use data and statistics and things to operate a business better, more efficiently. And that's a win-win because it would be better for the consumers, better for the company, and hence a noble way to compete. And I, I thought that would be great. And so I learned as much as I could uh, in my microeconomics. I maybe took a few courses in statistics, but that was about it. I graduated and I got into the uh, I got into industry, into companies. I got a, a gig uh, consulting, um, helping companies do this. And it turns out that that microeconomic stuff was pretty much all theory. Nobody was doing this stuff yet. <laughs> um, uh, you, you talk about being born at the right time, however, you know, right when I got out of undergrad was right when things were starting to turn. Uh, the stuff was still highly theoretical, but data was becoming available and the cost to process it was, was becoming affordable. Um, and so now you could actually start to do these things. Um, again, these were represented as graphs in uh, economics textbooks. Nobody actually really did them. They were just kind of conceptual. But for the first time ever, it was becoming possible. So it was kind of fun to be um, you know, entering the workforce at exactly that moment where I got to do something that at the time was very novel. Um, but I learned sort of the hard way that um, economics did not properly prepare me for this. The required skills were sort of distributed into several fields. I mentioned statistics. Uh, there's also computer science and then more of like a business um, domain expertise type of thing. Um, and I found out that economics alone was just completely impractical. You needed you know, the statistics to actually quantify the exact curves and the shapes of those curves and where points intersect to so find the top of a curve, that type of thing. And then to do anything, you needed computer science to process that data to allow those st- statistics to compute, et cetera. Um, and then, of course, you needed uh, domain expertise in the business, which I got through my consulting path. But my whole career has been that quest to kind of combine those three things, all in the you know quest to do these microeconomic type of models to put them into production and make them a reality. So that's my background. It goes back, you know, uh, 25 years ago, consulting. Um, and then, you know, going back to school to get, um, better computer science skills and better statistics skills, et cetera. Um, sort of meandered across, um, uh, you know, business domains through consulting later into the world of big data. When my time at Yahoo, we're learning how to process petabytes of data. And then later when I got to Netflix, 
uh, actually putting um, things into production through algorithms, actually having you know uh, uh, systems that would take automated action on things to actually do things in response to these microeconomic trends and so forth. And so that was kind of my amalgam of stuff that uh, I had to come together with. And then my latest thing is figuring out how to organize for this. Um, so it's been a, a long road with a lot of things coming together nicely. And again, completely unplanned by my part. This was all just a silly quest to do these microeconomic things. But um, along the path, I got nudged into different directions to acquire different skills and, and the experiences that kind of have all now culminated into where I am today. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you talk about microeconomics and algorithms, uh, at least the kinds of algorithms that we tend to see at companies like Yahoo and Netflix and Stitch Fix as almost one and the same. Uh, but I never hear that characterization as, you know, what we're trying to do is put out, put microeconomics into to practice. Do you suppose there's any kind of unique perspective that the your, your passion for microeconomics and background in that field that you bring to data science? Yeah, because you're correct. I believe the um, like things like recommendation systems really were born out of schools of computer science as opposed to economics. Mm-hmm. But if you think about you know what they're doing is they're making an organization more efficient, right? Which is really you know microeconomics is you know the classic microeconomics, which are the things that are in my textbooks were things like pricing efficiencies, right? You know, kind of figuring out your base price elasticity and setting prices appropriately, or more from the school of operations research, how to run your operations more efficiently. And they all use the same concepts from math and statistics to and, and leverage data to um, materialize those concepts. And then you take action on through automated um, means or algorithms. So all those things kind of I put under this kind of superheading of microeconomics. And if those textbooks uh, were written now, I think they could include things like recommendation systems because they are doing a similar thing. They're leveraging a company's uh, internal asset data in order to be more efficient, figuring out what to show different customers. You've been at Citrix for how long now? Uh, coming up on seven years now. Yeah, it's a little, I, I, you know, I first started actually as an advisor to the company, and that was a little over seven years ago. I, I was at Netflix prior to this. So I was the VP of data science and engineering at Netflix for six or seven, six and a half years. Um, no interest in actually leaving Netflix, but I got a call and you get calls a lot, but you, at Netflix, you're pretty busy. You work a lot of hours. It's hard and uh, the company is a fast pace. And so you don't really participate in a lot of things outside of Netflix. So things like advising. So I would pretty quickly turn these things down and wouldn't even listen to most of them. But I do remember receiving a particular call from a venture capitalist. It was in the parking lot of Netflix trying to leave to go home. And I took the call and he told me about Stitch Fix and its founder, Katrina Lake, who's trying to do this interesting thing uh, with clothing. Um, And instantly it struck a chord. It was sort of a fortuitous timing. That very day, uh, some of the meetings I walked out of earlier that day, we were stumbling on some problems, things like, um, or opportunities, I should call them. You know, we talked about our recommendation system at Netflix. And, uh, you know, at the time, most of the recommendations were there on the website as well as uh, in the mobile app. But um, what we would do is we'd cast a wide net with the recommendations because we're not that confident in what somebody wants to watch in any particular moment. So on the website, you might be met with 100 recommendations at once, 100 box shots of different movies you might be interested in. 
Um, we used to joke. There's a product manager still at Netflix today that would joke, you know, if we were more confident in our recommendations, we wouldn't show so many, a hundred. We would show maybe like five or even one. If we're super confident in our recommendations, we could just play the very thing the person wants to see. And, and you can imagine that you open up the app and the very thing you wanted to see just starts playing. Now that would be bold. All right. So this was a conversation we had just had and I get the call about Stitch Fix, which is doing this very thing, but with clothing, right? They're going to be so bold as not to actually just recommend the clothes to you, but they're rather going to ship them to your door sight unseen. So I found that was interesting. And, you know, hearing about their business model was very interesting. Um, and, you know, again, it caught me at this at the right timing that, you know, this sounds like something that I'd like to participate in, not as an employee. That sounds crazy. I'm not going to leave Netflix for this you know, risky startup, but I'll be an advisor. And so I, um, I, well, even that didn't happen immediately. I had to first research Katrina, the founder, our CEO, and she was very impressive on paper, but, you know, she hadn't run a company before. Uh, this was her first startup. And so, you know, I was actually even reluctant to even take the meeting with her because of time. I just never had time. But we finally end up meeting up in San Francisco and we hit it off. And once I met her in person, I, I realized there's a lot more thought put into this than I had um, first believed. And, you know, I was very inspired by her. And anyways, we made it happen. I became an advisor to the company. I still wasn't going to join. Um, and I lasted merely four or five months as an advisor. Um, one of the conditions of my um, advising is I needed access to the data. I wanted to be able to see what's going on in there. And how um, you know the quality of the data, how predictive it can be, and what it could be useful with, and 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 you know she complied, and I was able to access the data, and I looked at things, um, and I never seen data like this before. It was like straight out of a textbook, those old like those microeconomic textbooks, things that were supposed to be theory were as clear as day. The curves looked like the curves they were supposed to be. You had Gaussians, you had you know um, power laws, you had all the things right there staring at the face. You didn't have to do much to reveal them. You just kind of query the data and there it was presented to you. I went, wow, this is fun. Uh, There's a lot of predictive power once you have that data that's so well behaved. And I loved explaining phenomenon. So I get hooked on this data pretty quickly. Uh, over my four months of an advisor, I'm supposed to be spending like an hour a month with the company. That's my contract. I was spending more like 25 hours a month just tinkering. And again, I'm a busy guy. I had things going on at Netflix, but I found the time to tinker with this stuff. And I got hooked. The other thing that happened over this four or five months as an advisor is um, I had my wife try the service. It was women only at the time. So I had my wife try it and, and, and a few of the ladies in my neighborhood try it. And of course, they tried it the first time because I asked them to. But I watched them and I watched how the anticipation when they're waiting to receive their, fix, uh, their, their shipment. And I watched the joy as they opened these things. And I watched how they talked about how it made them feel. And then I watched, most importantly, how it changed their behaviors, right? All of a sudden, they stop going to stores. This becomes their primary means of shopping. And this is something Katrina tried to tell me from the very beginning. She said, we're going to change the way people shop. And I thought that was just founder aspiration, right? And I go, that's great. You should believe that because you're the founder. <laughs> I don't have to believe it because I'm just an advisor. But uh, I found that she was not just blowing smoke. She meant it. And it took me five months and staring at data to be convinced of it and seeing, you know, some anecdotal examples of my wife and neighborhood ladies to really find it compelling. I said, wow, she's on to something. 
And that's when I approached Katrina. It was August of 2012. I said, hey, Katrina, if you'll have me, I'm in as an employee. I'd love to do this. And we figured out how to make that work. And it's been a fun ride ever since. Oh, what a great story. So since then, you've done quite a bit with algorithms and data science at Stitch Fix. Can you kind of give us an overview of the different ways that data science plays out within Stitch Fix? Yeah, so Stitch Fix, the fun thing is, is we found these applications of data science throughout the company. So what had originally started is the most ostensible thing we could do is a recommendation system, right? We're going to be picking out clothes for people and we're going to be paying, you know, this is the stark contrast to Netflix. Netflix, we recommend things just digitally, bits and bytes. We recommend things through a web page or an app. But um, with Stitch Fix, we're actually going to send it to you, right? So we need to pay the shipping to get it to your house. And that is expensive. Right. So we got the shipping in both directions we're paying for, plus that cost of the physical inventory being unavailable to other clients for a period of time. Right. So this is getting expensive. Plus, we have a much bigger investment on the part of our client. Right. So our client is expecting a very relevant box of clothes. She's going to be very upset if we get this wrong. Uh, in contrast to Netflix, people, you know, there's goofy recommendations that happen, but it's sort of a shoulder shrug. You move on. Uh, you know, as a, as a consumer or a client of Netflix, yeah, that's weird. Why are you recommending me that? And you move on. Um, and on Netflix side, it didn't really cost them much for, on the, at least on the margin, for an incremental bad recommendation, not a big deal. Of course, in an aggregate, it could be pretty bad, but on the margin, not a big deal. So, so Stitchfix has this interesting nuance that, oh, we're actually, we have bigger penalties for getting it wrong. And it turns out this is a good thing. This makes you pay attention as an algorithm developer. You want a penalty so that you really have to you you, take, you have this great incentive to get it right. Now you don't want the penalties to be too high because then you won't take any risk, and that's what you get in like financial loans, right? They they don't want a single default to ever happen because uh, while the 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 defaults will probably evoke great learnings, it's still very costly. It could be you know fifty thousand dollars. So Stitch Fix is right in the sweet spot with our recommendations. They're, you know, the penalties are severe. You don't want to have many of them, but not so severe that you're not going to take any risk. You want to learn and be able to do those things. So, okay, this is interesting now. Um, and so we started, you know, again, this was the most obvious thing we can do is start to build a recommendation engine. Um, and we, we've done that. We did that from the very beginning, and it was great. We started out with very simple methods and started getting more and more leverage. Of course, we have a nuance with our humans in the loop. We also have stylists because there's things that machines can't do, things like empathizing and relating to other humans, right? So we still need that, but we need machines to do all the things that are more quantitative and empirical. And so there's this whole challenge of combining those two different processes, there's machine hardware with human hardware. Um, and so we figured out how to do that over the years. Um, but that was just um, our initial foot in the water on algorithms. We quickly learned that there's a whole bunch of other things we can do. And things like inventory management algorithms, things like demand forecasting algorithms, things like escalation algorithms, or even we even have algorithms that are designing the clothes now. So the algorithms proliferated. Um, and we can talk about how that happens in a bit. But we now have several dozen algorithmic capabilities that are running various parts of the company. And not much of it was planned for. They all sort of emerged kind of naturally. And so I can't take credit for planning this all out. This was, um, you know, having the right people around 
and the right motivations for them to figure this stuff out, even without being asked to. Um, so a lot of these things that you'll see on that algorithms tour, if you go check that out, they just emerged on their own, not driven by top-down processes. Um, and that's uh, a conversation that we'll get into in a bit. But um, I want the main thing to convey now is that it's not just a recommendation system. We have over 100 algorithm developers at Stitch Fix, and we only have about seven that are working on the recommendation system. The other 93 are doing other types of algorithms that are equally important. They're just a little bit more behind the scenes. They're not uh, ostensible to the outside world um, as much as our recommendation system is. And you mentioned the algorithms tour. That's a post that you put up on the Stitch Fix uh, blog a, a couple of years back, and we will link to that in the show notes so folks can check it out. Uh, it's definitely pretty interesting. Um, but when you think about these hundreds of algorithms, how do you think about them from a portfolio and value perspective? Like, is uh, are the you know is the recommendation system kind of the you know the the big value driver, and then you've got a bunch of low hanging fruit, smaller systems, or you know are there you know are there other kind of you know big value drivers in there? How do you think about that algorithmic landscape, if you will? Um, well, let's see. So there isn't. Uh, there are ones. There are some that are you know equally valuable to even the recommendation system, um, and there are smaller ones, bigger ones, etc. Um, so they're kind of all over the map. Now they are nicely, most of the time, nicely quantifiable, um, right? You can do things like AB test them to find out what would happen in the absence of their presence, right? Um, and you can find out what they're, they're worth to the company. In fact, that's how most of them emerged as, you know, we could say things like, huh, we developed this new algorithm and if we use it, it will generate X, right? And so it becomes what we call a no brainer. There's no cost or the cost has already been born. And we know the value, right? And so that's what you call a no-brainer. Of course, we're going to push that to production and and and, and get the benefits. Um, so, but you know, to give you a little more context of some of the value it's driving, so you have things like inventory algorithms that manage the inventory or buying algorithms. So we do hold inventory. So what happens is we buy things at wholesale, sell them at retail, right? Same business model that's existed for hundreds of years, but we do it more efficiently. So when we buy things at wholesale, we need to decide what to go buy. And we crudely break it into two classes of um, purchases. There's what we call rebuys, things that we've had some experience before, such as you know dresses and jeans and things that we've actually tried out in the past, and we've got data on it now. So those things can be managed algorithmically. And so we have an algorithm that says what to go buy. Um, and that is tremendously valuable. Um, I hadn't had an appreciation of this before working in retail. I've heard from others that had worked in retail about what a challenge this is, but I didn't have the appreciation until I got to live and breathe it. Buying is tricky. It's, buying your merchandise is one of the most critical things you can do for a company, right? This is your big capital outlay. You're going to buy this inventory and, and, and then you're going to sell it. And if it doesn't sell, you're stuck with a lot of inventory. And if you buy the wrong sizes of stuff, it could be way off, right? So most companies, most retailers buy in this kind of standard distribution of sizes. You know, you have things like extra small, small, medium, large, and extra large. And you get like a bell-shaped curve uh, over that of your, you know, the quantities you're going to buy. But it turns out that that's not necessarily what's going to get sold. And so rather than buy in a traditional bell-shaped curve, we'll buy 
in the distributions that our clients exhibit. So in some cases, we may choose to get no extra larges at all in some particular blouse because it, we've learned that it doesn't fit well. Um, or we'll buy twice as many smalls as mediums because we know that our clients will um, demonstrate that behavior. And so this is really a lot more efficient when you can buy the right things that you know are going to sell in the right amount of time. And so, again, we use a myriad of algorithms, and um, some of them were borrowed from the area of uh, operations research to figure out how frequently to buy things, what quantities to buy in, and what overall distributions of uh, what we call an assortment to buy. And this makes a humongous difference um, in providing value to our clients and to our uh, economics at Stitchfix. Now, as you describe these hundreds of algorithms or 800 algorithms constantly at work, at Stitch Fix, I'm, I'm thinking of, it, it calls to mind for me, you know, these hundreds of individual applications. And is there a common operating system that all of these applications run on? Uh, can you speak a little bit to the way you uh, support the different algorithmic efforts from a technology perspective? Right. So that is a, a critical um point of success for any algorithms team is to have a great algorithms platform team. And so we have that. They're also part of the, the department, right? So they're not a separate team. They're um, within us. Um, and we call them data platform or algorithms platform. And these folks are um, a little bit more computer science oriented. They're great generalizers. They'll build things that run that algorithm or that algorithm or that one, right? So they know how to generalize things. They also build the infrastructure that runs all the algorithms, um, as well as other tooling like um, you know job schedulers and uh, job sequencers, um, things that will handle data distribution. What they're doing is encapsulating all the things that are more computer science-y in nature so that the data scientists don't need to worry about them as much, right? They can go focus most of their time on science and statistics and math, and they don't need to know the innards of containerization, for example, um, or uh, parallel processing, most of that can be encapsulated for them so they can get back to working on science. Um, and so that has been a wonderful complement. And again, having them as part of the same team is key. That way they can adopt the same priorities and values. And we come up with a much better solution. Uh, sort of a mantra we use at Stitch Fix uh, in the algorithms team is no handoffs. So we don't want to hand off things between teams. And so we want to build and design the roles for autonomy. And so when you think about our algorithms platform, a lot of people mistakenly think, oh, yeah, I get it. They're the data engineers that build the pipelines for the data scientists. I'm like, no, that's not true. They build the data platform. The data scientists have to build their own data pipelines, but they can run them on the platform. So it is a platform in the truest sense. And it's all homegrown. Um, we're, of course, in the cloud, in AWS, um, and we've, you know, we've borrowed as much as we can from the open source community, Spark and all the usual players are in there. And then we've augmented with our own stuff as we needed to. Uh, and so that was maybe a side door segue into talking about organizations and the way you organize uh, data science, uh, a part of that being have a team that supports them from a platform perspective. What are some of the other things that you've learned from an organizational perspective that have contributed to the success of the data science team there? 
Yeah, there's a, you know a few things that we've learned over the years. Um, uh, roughly, I'll put them into three big buckets. They are have your own department, reporting to the CEO. Um, second, when it comes down to individual roles of the data scientist, we we tend to uh, leverage what we call data science generalist or full stack data scientist. And then finally is more of a, a statement about um, how uh, process. We prefer a more bottoms-up approach versus central planning. So we can go into each of those. Let's start with our own department reporting to the CEO. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this isn't something I would say I would endorse for every company. But when data science is part of your competitive differentiation, then you want to take it seriously and give it its own department reporting to the CEO. Whatever your differentiation is, you want to make it its own department reporting to the CEO. Because in that way, you get to develop your own tooling and workflows, ways of working, right? Data science is not like any other field, right? It's not like engineering. It's not like marketing or product. It has its own way of working. The biggest distinction is that most of its capabilities, when you design a data product or an algorithmic product, it usually can't be designed up front. It needs to be learned as you go. And this warrants a very different work style. And it's one that just doesn't fit into a lot of engineering workflows or marketing or others. Um, And so if it's tucked, if you have your data science team tucked under a different department like that, it'll be forced to inherit the work style of the parent organization. And so that won't work for data science. I think it needs to have its own ethos and ways of working. And so you got to make it its own. Um, Now, and to be clear, uh, when you say these projects uh, need to be learned, we're not talking strictly about machine learning. We're talking about learning in the, the broader sense. Is that right? That's correct. I mean, uh, even inherent to machine learning, there is uncertainty, right? You don't know if this thing's going to work or not. You may think, well, gosh, it'd be great if we can develop an algorithm to do whatever. And you may find that at least with the data you have, there's no predictive power. So it, it, it it's not going to help. Right. So that does happen. Um, But even when you have success, you found predictive capabilities within your data and you start to um, build your algorithm. Oftentimes, each individual parameter or even the type of model or even the hyperparameters, they all need to be learned. Right. You can't design them up front. You're going to need to try things in the data and see what it tells you and then iterate and go back. Often there's a lot of um, feature engineering that is done through trial and error. Like you, you make your best uh, attempt in, in your first pass, and then you learn something by looking at the results of trying that feature in a model. And you're saying, wow, it must be something different than I had originally thought. I'm going to try it this way now. And you keep going and iterating. And then you usually find a bunch of half dozen other things that you didn't anticipate trying at all uh, in the process, right? So it's a heavy iterative process to um, develop an algorithm. It's not something that you spec out and hand off to somebody else and say, here you go, here's your, here's your algorithm, I'll just go implement it. No, you have to kind of learn it as you go. Um, and so this is something that when you have a property like that where it can't be designed up front, um, then you're going to want to organize very differently, and that's where we get into that full-stack data scientist. Um, the full-stack data science thing is, a, you know, it's sort of a – it's a generalist role as opposed to um, where a lot of other companies are doing things, specializing their data science teams. So we got like things like data engineering or 
um, ML engineering or inference engineer or a research scientist. And each plays a, a, a smaller part in a big collection of, uh, of a capability where all those things need to come together as a single capability. But you got the different pieces farmed out to different specialists. And it, we do that because it makes a lot of sense to us. We, we learned from Adam Smith and we, where we were taught that, oh, uh, you know, we get these process efficiencies due to the division of labor. And it sounds really good, but that only works when you know exactly what it is you're building, right? When you have specs that are crystal clear down to the millimeter of precision, then you can divide and conquer like that. But when you need to learn as you go, you have to rely on iteration. And the challenge with specialists is they have a high coordination cost. It's a lot more expensive to coordinate multiple people than it is just one. Even worse, even more nefarious, then those coordination costs are the wait times. This is the time in between work. So let's suppose you have a data engineer that builds a new data pipeline, and um, you know maybe a, a research scientist is now going to construct a model from that data. And the research scientist says, well, uh, she discovers that oh, she needs a few more features that are not manifest in the data. So she goes back to the data engineer. So you add these things in. Data engineer says, yes, I can, but I'm busy on a different project right now. I'll get back to you uh, next week. And so a week goes by, and it may have only been a few hours of work to add the new uh, features, but a week goes by. So that's a week of wait time for what is just a few hours of work. And that is expensive. And that's the cost of specialization is you're coordinating these disparate resources that all work on other projects because they're specialists, and uh, you end up with long gaps in between the work. And it's very costly, especially when you benefit so much from learning and iteration. So that's the reason we don't do the data science specialist roles. Instead, we do um, the full stack data scientists that can take um, the initiative from conception, to, you know, coming up with the idea and framing the problem, to doing the modeling, to doing the data engineering, to even putting it in production. Um, one person to or one or very few people to go through all those steps, we find is a lot more effective than dealing with all the coordination costs and wait times. One of the uh, perhaps most prominent trends in organizing data science uh, efforts, uh, and you spoke to this, uh, but is that aspect of specialization. I feel like you know, when we first started talking about this, uh, whatever, 10 years ago, everyone was looking for kind of this unicorn data scientist. And maybe you can talk about if that's the same or different than a full stack data scientist. Uh, but everyone was looking for this unicorn that knew the business, knew the stats, knew how to code. Um, and uh, in a lot of ways, I think part of the progress that we've made is splitting out these skill sets and uh, allowing for uh, some of that specialization so that you know, we don't have to find these kind of Swiss Army knife ninja whatevers uh, that can do everything. Um, and as the most recent element of that, you know, we've seen the, you know, over the past few years, this role of machine learning engineer has uh, really kind of taken off. Um, and that is someone that kind of knows the machine learning stuff, you know, well, not as, as much as maybe a research scientist or, or someone, or not as deeply uh, as a research scientist or someone that has, you know, the statistical background, but knows how to build 
systems with it and can also code, uh, you know, in a production ready way. And, you know, that seems to have driven a lot of the scale at some of the uh, companies that are really heavily invested in machine learning and data science. And, and I'm wondering, are there things that you, in particular, that you kind of attribute your different way of seeing things? Is it an issue of scale? Are your team smaller than, you know, the teams at some of the companies that are taking a more specialized approach? Or, um, you know, is it just a fundamentally different way of looking at kind of the efficiencies of, of the organization? Yeah. Well, first of all, yes, your unicorn analogy is correct. Those are the type of people we look for. They can, you know, frame the problems, have enough business context and speak business enough to be credible, but also do the math and the statistics to build and select models and train models, but also put them into production, right? We don't like handoffs between those worlds because it slows us down. Um, so we do hire unicorns. Now we've learned that Unicorns do exist. It's just that their the little horn is not always visible in early stages of development. You can tra- <laughs> train people, mm-hmm. right? So we can um, we can hire folks, very smart folks, that are willing to learn these things. And it's it's sort of a trait that we look for. It's a tough one to really identify in interviews, but you can pull it out of them in clever ways, asking them about a time where they've had to go way outside of their you know uh, purview to get something done. And we looked for that. We've hired a lot of physicists, for example, that have gone way outside of their uh, purview to get something done. You know, they might have to go their Their job is to, you know, get satellite imagery. Um, and because they didn't have um, any, you know, support to process the data, they did, took it upon themselves to build um structures and packages to make the processing more efficient um, or because, you know, they needed to uh, more machines than their um, organization was providing them with. They took it upon themselves to go get into the cloud and provision their own machines. Right. So these are examples of folks that will do whatever it takes to get that thing up and running. And that's what we look for. And that's what we provide them with all the tools that they need um, to be effective at, at doing an end to end solution. Now we're not, crazy here. We do know that there are boundary conditions to this, and we're well aware of them. We do benefit from a few things at Stitch Fix. Number one, our data is not particularly humongous. We deal with terabytes of data, not petabytes. And this makes it much more feasible for these uh, to have these unicorn types do um, you know, code well enough um, to you know, do their own uh, data pipelines, as well as um, implement them in a production framework, etc., now, if you know, there is a point where the data gets so big that you really need to get highly specialized. You know, you can no longer do this stuff in Python. You have to you know, resort to C++, um, or heavily typed uh, languages where the processing could be a lot more efficient. We're not in that place. We deal with terabytes, not petabytes. And so we can get away with this for that reason. That's the um, data volume effect. Uh, the other thing we benefit is... Um, availability requirements. So we do have the gamut. We do have some algorithms that are extremely highly available or need to be extremely highly available with uh, very high SLAs. Um, others are low availability, meaning they're, like I described earlier, um, a buying algorithm, an algorithm that'll go and purchase or you know, give out a, a buy sheet of what to go buy. Um, uh, and that algorithm is 
It does not need to be nearly as highly available because it's only used internally by about 30 merchants, right? So it spits out their buy sheets for them. And that one, you know, it could break and our algorithm developer can send out a note to the 30 people and says, hey, I'm on it. It'll be back up and running in an hour. And that's fine. So that in that scenario, it's a much lower availability requirement and it allows us to be um, to make judgment calls on you know the level of support we need it needs to provide. So those are two examples of boundary conditions. Okay, our data is not that big that you need specialization, nor is it in, in some cases need to be so highly available that it can never fail, right? You have different engineering requirements based on those those um, parameters. And so it allows us to do things different. We also oftentimes don't have the same consequences as other companies for, I mentioned our styling algorithm is pretty sensitive to um, failures. We don't want to get that one wrong, but others are not so bad. Um, you know, in fact, I would say uh, we, we would do things differently if we were in manufacturing or medical. In those two domains, you want to uh, be far more buttoned up. You don't want to do uh, the amount of risk taking that we do with our algorithms. Uh, in those areas, you need to be ironclad because the cost of getting something wrong, it could be devastating to the company. So we're aware of these boundary conditions. And, and I think that's a key message to get out there is you want to do what's appropriate for your environment. And for us, we found that given those um, different requirements, we don't need to be as highly available in some cases, and we don't have as big a data in some cases, and we don't have the big consequences in other cases. And so that means we can get by with doing things in a more generalist model, which allows us to innovate much faster. That's the, 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 the good side of generalist roles is you can innovate much faster. You can try things much quicker. You can fail quicker um, and also lead to successes quicker. And it also leads to very fulfilling roles. There's nothing more satisfying than owning something from end to end. It gives you a uh, the three properties of job satisfaction that Dan Pink talks about in his book, Drive, you get autonomy because you are no longer dependent on somebody else for success. You get mastery because you know this thing from end to end and you get um, purpose or impact. You get to impact the company in a very measurable way. And all those three things combine to make it one sweet role uh, in data science at Stitch Fix. And you mentioned you've got this uh platforms team that is part of the algorithms organization is that team staffed with the the same type of generalist could they swap out and take the place of one of the uh algorithm algorithms folks that's working on uh a modeling problem and, and vice versa um less so right there is that is a more clear um distinction and skill set. I would say that our algorithms platform team, it tends to be much better computer scientists than our uh, data science side of the house, which tend to be in, you know, some of the sciences, either statistics or math or even neuroscience or some of the physics domains. Um, but they usually don't come from a computer science background. And that's why they're very complementary as, you know, one team's building all the tooling to enable data scientists to not have to worry about the innards. And so there is a bit of a distinction there. Now, happily, we've had some migration between the groups. Um, and to our surprise, it's um, more so from the data science side to the data platform or algorithms platform side. Uh, we thought that there would be the other way. 
uh, it seems like everybody wants to be a data scientist this, these days and less an out, uh, a platform developer. But happily, we found the opposite. We've had more migration the other way. Um, now, not everyone can transition back and forth. I think there has to be um, you know, a little bit of skills that people either have picked up or have been classically trained. You know, computer science is one of those things where I think it matters that you get some real training, real academic training, um, not just um, hack your way into things. Um, it can really matter in the way you design and write code. But uh, happily, it's, we've had a, um, some malleability across those two um, pieces of the team. But I guess the key distinction is that typically the data scientist that's working on a problem isn't waiting for platform features or capabilities. They're there. The platform team is outside of that innovation loop for getting projects done. That's right. There's, there's no handoffs between the teams. Um, right. You're not going to, a data scientist isn't going to go to a data platform engineer and say, here's what I need from you. Right. The data, rather At least the not data in the short term. Hopefully there's some long-term communication there. Long-term, what happens actually is it's the data platform that figures out what needs to be built. They build all the things that aren't asked for. So nobody asks for, you know, a containerization package. They just realize, you know, that's probably hard for the data scientists to do that. We should do that for them. Well, nobody asked for, you know, a distributed processing engine, you know, the data platform folks just observed that, oh, yeah, they're running into some issues. So let's take care of that for them. Right. So they do all these wonderful things uh, by just being good listeners, good observers and and build what's not asked for, but is desperately going to be needed. And so that's how things get done is um, we just keep people very closely working together. They do have some different skill sets and they watch for where they can add value. Mm. And so you talked about three uh, three kind of characteristics of the way you organize, and we've touched on two of them. The third is around kind of supporting emergent behaviors in the organization. What does that mean? Yeah, so you know, I mentioned we have I don't know several dozen algorithmic capabilities, and I can only think of one of them that was actually asked for. All the others were emergent, meaning they came from data science tinkering. So what that means is we have data scientists and we hire them to do something. They have some stated priorities and they'll be working on that stuff. And along the way, they'll come across some data that was curious or interesting to them. You know, not what they're supposed to be doing, but they stumbled and said, I wonder why that turned out to be as big as it was. And they might follow that path and go explore it. And in so doing, they might trip across some unexplained phenomenon and it leads to the development of a new capability. Uh, you know, just at, nobody asked them to do it, but just curiosity ensued. And they, next thing you know, they've discovered, um, you know, the next capability that we're going to be um, leveraging. Um, an example being, uh, we have somebody named Dara. He was working on uh, these uh, purchasing algorithms. Um, and on a, as a side project, he sort of tinkered. And he said, I wonder if I could use an algorithm to design clothing. And so then he started tinkering and figured out that, huh, this looks pretty good, that if he used this form of genetic algorithm, he can recombine uh, old styles together in new ways that nobody's ever seen before to create something new. And, you know, we were all kind of skeptical of it, but the nice thing with data is it comes with evidence. These aren't just opinionated um, ideas, they come with evidence, right? So by the time he's coming to talk to us about it, he's already proven it out, to, you know, for the most part. Um, you know, we have measures 
in statistics like AUC and RMSE that kind of tell us we're on the right path. This has predictive value. And then the next step might be to try it out in real life, you know, try it out on the AB test um, on real clients. And that'll, you know, either validate or reject your earlier evidence. And then from that point, it becomes really easy back to that part where I called it a no-brainer. It's already been built, so there's no cost to build it, and you have evidence of the impact it'll have once you launch it live. And so usually it just kind of goes right into production from that. So what I described there was an example of a success. Of course there's failures. We have lots of failures. In fact, they they outnumber the successes by some magnitude. I don't know if it's three to one or five to one. We've never really kept track. But the thing is, they're very low cost. They fail, and you probably might not even think to tell anybody about it. Because you just tried some curiosity thing and you found out it didn't go anywhere, you shut it down, you move on. And that's the beauty I've learned of these data products is they're extremely low cost to explore. And yet they come with this evidence that show when you're on the right path. And then you can usually even build and productionize them for barely you know, cheap. They don't take a lot of upfront cost. It's just somebody's tinkering. And then you can try them out, you know, in a, an A-B test and really get the the true measure, and then you know, push it live to the rest of, of um, the company if it really um, holds up. And so low-cost exploration with um, evidence, and then the last little bit that I think is an important thing is these asymmetric outcomes, right? The cost of failure is small. The cost or the benefits of success are big. And so you can have that um, sort of losing ratio. You might have you know, three to one six, um, failures to success rate. And the one success will pay for all the failures. And mm-hmm. uh, it's a way to really kind of um, endorse innovation and foster it in, in your organization is to, you know, those three properties of low cost exploration, evidence of their uh, efficacy and asymmetric outcomes. And so to maybe wrap things up, you know, much of the way you've talked about these organizational principles is uh, unconventional and well, I don't know, is even unconventional the, the, the right word uh, here in the sense of all this stuff is new and I don't know that there's necessarily a, a convention, but it's it certainly uh, goes against the direction that things are headed. You know, if someone out there has heard what you are describing and uh, is in or runs an organization that is not organized like this at all, but is kind of interested in these ideas. Any advice for them? Yeah, you really got to be thoughtful um, about your environment. You know, no way of working is necessarily better than any other. It has to be a good fit for your environment. And so, you know, even what we've done here at Stitch Fix. If we didn't do this from the beginning, I'm not sure it would have been um, uh, the company would have been as amenable to it, right? We were, you know, here from the very beginning. We established some of these ways of working, and then we had a lot of successes to build on. And I think that's what allowed us to pave the way um, to learn and, and foster the parts that worked and get rid of the parts that didn't work so well. Um, so we have to be very reflective on that. Like you have to figure out well, why is there friction when we try to do this? And why is there um, you know, resistance when we try to do this other way? And figure out what it is that's going on. You know, It's kind of like the study of incentives within an organization. Figure out what works. Um, so you need to do the right thing for your environment is one thing. 
Um, and then be aware of those boundary conditions, right. That I mentioned, you know, we can are able to do this for, um, you know, various reasons of our data is not that big. We don't have, in most cases, the high availability requirements, et cetera. So you have to really be thoughtful about this and figure out, you know, it, you know, we've spent significant time on this debating and, uh, you know, entire day offsites just to talk about org structure and process. And the main credit I will give us is we didn't do the default thing. We didn't just say, well, let's do what we did at our last companies. In fact, I explicitly came to Stitch Fix partially for that reason. I mentioned all the all my rationale for joining, but there was one other nice thing, and that was that I'd made a lot of mistakes in my press career at Netflix and Yahoo, or you know, they weren't really mistakes until hindsight gave me the clarity I needed. I looked back and said, gosh, if I could start over, I would do things differently at all these companies. And sometimes it's hard to start over at your existing place because um, you just have a lot of legacy code that you need to support and so forth. But I remember that when I went to Stitch Fix, I said, wow, I have a clean slate right now. I'm going to leverage everything I've learned in my career and do this very intentionally from the beginning and set up all the stuff that I thought would always be a good idea uh, that I learned, only learned, you know, through years of experience. And so that thoughtfulness, I think, was what brought on a lot of this. And again, not I couldn't claim to have foreseen everything that we've done. It was just a matter of keeping our eyes open and keep uh, you know a good group of people that I was fortunate enough to hire and have them to debate things with um, and uh, you know collaborate with on setting up the right structures and incentives to do this in a way that was 100% appropriate for our environment. And I think that paid off pretty well. So don't ever end, underestimate the amount of thought and work it takes in, takes to put something like this together and don't accept the defaults. Don't just do it like you did at your last company. Do it intentionally correct for the, your environment. Uh, well, Eric, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me about what you've been up to Um uh, I think there are really some interesting learnings in here for folks that are on their own processes of or their own paths of organizing uh, for data science. Sounds good. Well, thanks for having me on. It's been fun. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. If you like what you've heard here, please do us a favor and tell your friends about the show. And if you haven't already hit the subscribe button yourself, make sure to do so so you won't miss any of the great episodes we've got in store for you. For more information on any of the shows in our Strata data series, visit twimlai.com slash stratasf19. Thanks once again to Cloudera for sponsoring this series. Be sure to check them out at cloudera.com slash ml. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.